gentlemen, you can't get away from the fact that blood was there. You can't do it. Now, can you? Just as honest men, now, honest men, can you get away from that? If human testimony is to be believed, you've got to recognize the fact that blood was on the second floor, and that there was no blood at the scuttle hole, that the shirt and the club and the spots were plants. She had left the plant five minutes when Lemmy Quinn, the foreman of that plant, came in and told me I couldn't keep him away from the factory, even though it was a holiday, at which time I smiled and kept on working. Smiled and kept on working. I wanted to know when they would have lunch. I got my house, and Manola answered the phone, and she answered me back that she would have lunch immediately and for me to come right away. I then gathered my papers together and went upstairs to see the boys on the top floor. This must have been, since I just looked at my watch, ten minutes to one. Mrs. White states that it was 12.35, that she passed by and saw me. That's possibly true. I have no recollection about it. Perhaps her recollection is better than mine. She remembered it very well. Now, this Manola McKnight business. Isn't it strange that this man Albert, her husband, would go up there and tell that kind of a tale if there wasn't some truth in it? Isn't it strange that Manola herself, in the tale that they seek to have you believe was a lie, should have been sustained by Mrs. Selig when she tells you, Yes, I gave her five dollars to go get some change. And Mrs. Frank gave her a hat. Do you believe that this husband of hers didn't see that man Frank when, after this murder, he went home and was anxious to see how he looked in the glass? But as the people had gone to the opera, anxious to get back to keep his engagement with Jim Conley? And all this talk about Mrs. Selig, about this thing not having been changed. Gentlemen, are you just going to swallow that kind of stuff without using your knowledge of human nature? And you tried to mix old Albert up, and right here I'm going to read you a little bit about Albert's evidence. Yes, sir, he came in close to 1.30, I guess, something like that. Did he or not eat anything? No, sir, not at that time, he didn't. He came in and went to the sideboard in the dining room and stood there a few minutes. Then he goes out and catches the car. How long did he stay at the house? I suppose he stayed there five or ten minutes. About five or ten minutes? About five or ten minutes. What did he do at the sideboard? I didn't see him do anything at the sideboard. Isn't there a door between the cook room and the dining room? These gentlemen asked him, and Albert said, Yes, this here dining room was open. Yes, they didn't keep it shut all the time, said Albert. And you know he didn't eat anything in that dining room? Yes, I know he didn't eat. And this is the tale that had been told Craven by the husband of Manola McKnight. And Manola went down there and in the presence of her counsel stated these things to these officers. And she never would have done it if it hadn't been the truth. Gordon was down there and he could have said, and if he hadn't said it, then he's unworthy of the name of lawyer. Manola, if these things aren't true, 
don't you put your name to it. If you do, you are liable to go to the penitentiary for false swearing. If you don't, the writ of habeas corpus is guaranteed to every man, and in less than two hours, by an order of a judge of the superior court, I'll have you out of here. And yet, George Gordon, with his knowledge of the law, with his knowledge of his client's rights, sits there and lets Manola McKnight, the cook, who is sustained in the statement that she then made, but which here in this presence she repudiated, corroborated by her husband and sustained in many particulars by the Selig's themselves, George Gordon sat there and let her put her fist to that paper, swearing to a lie that might send her to the penitentiary, and he was her lawyer and could have released her from that prison by a writ of habeas corpus as quick as he could have gotten to a judge. Because any judge that fails to hear a writ of habeas corpus immediately is subject to damages and impeachment. But Craven was there, and Albert was there, and this woman, McKnight, sitting there in the presence of her lawyer, this man that was so eager to inject into this case something that these men wanted in here all the time, but never could get until he got on that stand and swore that I had said a thing that you saw by the questions that I asked him never did occur, that I was afraid that I would get in bad with the detectives. I would get in bad with them if I would try to run their business, and I never will get in bad with them because I never expect to undertake to run their business. I've got as much as I can say grace over to attend to my own business. And you go out there, now, and bring in Julius Fisher and a photographer, and all these people, and try to prove this Negro Albert McKnight lied. And by the mere movement of that sideboard, which Mrs. Selig in her evidence says, even, Every time they swept, it was put just exactly back in the same place. Then you try to break down Albert McKnight's evidence with that. Why, gentlemen, Albert says that that sideboard had been moved, and you know it had been moved, and Albert McKnight stood, not where these gentlemen sought to put him, but at a place where he could see this man, Frank, who came home, there sometimes, as Albert says, between one and two o'clock, after he had murdered the girl and didn't eat his dinner, but hurried back to the factory to keep his engagement with Jim Conley, who had promised to come back and burn her body in the furnace. You tell me that Albert would have told that lie. You tell me that Albert's wife, in the presence of Albert and Craven and Pickett, honorable, upright men, who worked for the Beck and Gregg Company, the same firm that Albert McKnight works at, and do you tell me that George Gordon, a man who poses as an attorney, who wants to protect the rights of his client, as he would have you see, sat there in that presence and allowed this woman, for her husband, to put her fist to a paper and swear to it which would consign her to the penitentiary. I tell you that that thing never happened, and the reason Manola McKnight made that affidavit, corroborating this man, her husband, Albert, sustained as she is by the Seligs, biased and prejudiced and willing to protect their son-in-law as they were, is because it was the embodiment of the truth and nothing but the truth. And as honest, unprejudiced, unbiased men, you know it. And you know he didn't eat anything in that dining room. Yes, I know he didn't eat. Don't you know you can't sit in that dining room? Says Mr. Arnold. And don't you know you can't see from the kitchen into the dining room? You know that, don't you? Yes, sir, you certainly can see. 
and the very evidence of the photographs and Julius Fisher and others who came here, after that sideboard had been moved, sustains Albert McKnight and shows that once that sideboard is adjusted, you could see, as Albert says, and he did see, because he would have never told that tale unless he had been there and seen it. You can see in there? Yes, sir, you can see. Look in the mirror in the corner and see all over that dining room. That's what Albert swore. And if there's anybody in the world that knows how to get up a plan to see from the kitchen into the dining room or to hear what's going on among the white folks in the dining room, it's a Negro. And Albert took too straight a tale. He told too reasonable a tale. Don't you know that you can't look in the mirror in the corner and see it? Albert says, I did do it. I stayed there about five or ten minutes while he was there and looked in that mirror at him, Mr. Frank. You stayed there in that kitchen on that occasion and looked in the mirror at him that five or ten minutes he stayed there? Yes, sir. By looking in that mirror, you can see what's going on in that room? You can see if they are eating at the table. Don't you know that you can't see in that room by looking into that mirror? Yes, sir, you can see in there. You can see all over the room? Tried to make him say that. No, not all over it, exactly. But you can see even when they are eating at the table? You can look in that mirror and see in the sitting room and through that dining room, said Albert, to a certain extent. And he says he never was in the dining room in his life. That's reasonable. You were right side of the back door of the kitchen? Yes, sir. Let me give you a little drawing. Now, were you sitting right in front of that little hallway between the two rooms in front of it? Says Albert. Not exactly. You were sitting right here against the wall, weren't you? And he said, Yes, sir. I don't know whether it's fair or not. That's a fair statement. And Albert says, I don't know whether it's fair or not, but I know I saw Leo M. Frank come in there sometime between 1 and 2 o'clock Saturday, April 26th, and I know he didn't stay but about 10 minutes and left to go to town. And he tells you the way in which he left, and Frank in his statement says that, while he didn't get on that car, he went in such a direction as Albert McKnight might have naturally supposed he went down there. Manola, she went in there, but stayed only a minute or two in the dining room. I never looked at the clock. You don't know exactly what time? No, but I know it was obliged to have been something after one, when Mr. Frank came there, and he came in, and went before the sideboard, and then went back to town. And he says, 
I don't know exactly whether he did or not, because I have never been in the house no further than the cook room. Then he says, Who did you tell? I told Mr. Craven. Who is Craven? He is the boss at the plow department at the Beck and Greg Hardware Company. And that's the way the detectives got hold of it. And try all you will to break old Albert down. I submit to you, gentlemen, that he has told the absolute truth and stands unimpeached. August 25th. Mr. Dorsey. I regretted more than you the necessity for your being carried over another week, or rather, another Sunday. I was even more exhausted than I anticipated, and this morning my throat and voice are in such shape that I fear I will not be able to do the case the justice it demands. I thought myself, had we not had the adjournment that I might have been able to finish my speech, and his honor charge you Saturday afternoon, but I am sure such would not have been the case. When we closed on Saturday, I was just completing a brief analysis of the statement made by this defendant. I'm not going into any exhaustive analysis of that statement, because it is not necessary to further inconvenience you, and I haven't the physical strength. But there is certain language and certain statements and assertions made in this statement by this defendant, which merit some consideration. This defendant stated to you, after his honor had excluded our evidence and properly, I think, that his wife visited him at the police station. He says that she was there almost in hysterics, having been brought there by her father and two brothers-in-law and Rabbi Marks. No. Rabbi Marks was with me. I consulted with him as to the advisability of allowing my dear wife to come up to the top floor to see those surroundings, city detectives, reporters, and snapshotters. He doesn't prove that by a living soul and relies merely upon his own statement. If they could have proven it by Rabbi Marks, who was there and advised him, why didn't they do it? Do you tell me that there lives a true wife, conscious of her husband's innocence, that wouldn't have gone through snapshotters, reporters, and everything else to have seen him? Mr. Arnold I must object to as unfair and outrageous an argument as that, that his wife didn't go there through any consciousness of guilt on his part. I have sat here and heard the unfairest argument I have ever heard, and I can't object to it, but I do object to his making any allusion to the failure of the wife to go and see him. It's unfair, it isn't the way to treat a man on trial for his life. The Court Is there any evidence to that effect? Mr. Dorsey. Here is the statement I have read. Mr. Arnold. I object to his drawing any conclusions from his wife going or not going. One way or the other, it's an outrage upon law and decency and fairness. The court. Whatever was in the evidence or the statement, I must allow it. Mr. Dorsey. Let the galled jade wince. Mr. Arnold. I object to that. I'm not a galled jade, and I've got a right to object. I'm not galled at all, and that statement is entirely uncalled for.
Mr. Dorsey. Frank said that his wife never went back there because she was afraid that the snapshotters would get her picture. Because she didn't want to go through the line of snapshotters. I tell you, gentlemen of the jury, that there never lived a woman, conscious of the rectitude and innocence of her husband, who wouldn't have gone to him through snapshotters, reporters, and over the advice of any rabbi under the sun. And you know it. Frank says in his statement, with reference to these notes written by Conley, I said I know he can write. How long did it take him to say it, if he ever said it? I received many notes from him asking me to loan him money. I have received too many notes from him not to know that he can write. In other words, says Frank in his statement, I have received notes signed with his name, purporting to have been written by him, and he says they were written by a pencil. Frank says he said, I told them if you will look in the drawer in the safe, you will find the card of a jeweler from whom Conley bought a watch on the installment plan. He corroborates Conley there, with reference to the watch incident, and what occurred there in his office when Conley told him not to take any more money out. Now, perhaps if you go to that jeweler, you may find some sort of receipt that Conley had to give and be able to prove that Conley can write. Scott says that no such thing ever happened. But if Frank knew so well that this man Conley could write, in the name of fairness, why didn't Frank, when he saw those notes at the police station, found beside this dead body, then and there say, This is the writing of James Conley? Why didn't he do it? Scott denies that any such thing happened, or that they came into possession of any information from Frank that led to knowledge on their part that this man Conley could write. And up to the time that they discovered this man Conley could write, this man had kept his mouth sealed, and it was only the knowledge on the part of the detectives and the knowledge on the part of Conley that the detectives knew he was lying about his ability to write, that forced him to make the first admission that he was connected with this crime. He says he knew that Conley could write. Why, then, did he keep his mouth shut until the detectives discovered it, when he knew that the notes found beside that poor girl's body was the one key that was going to unlock the Fagan mystery? You know why. Ah, uh, you did know that Conley could write. You knew it, not only because he wrote the notes for you, through which you sought to place the responsibility for this crime on another man, but you knew it because he checked up the boxes of pencils. And he had written you numerous notes to get money from you, just like he borrowed money from those other people in that factory. You knew that the most powerful fact that could be brought to light showing who committed this dastardly crime was to find who penned the notes placed with the body. And yet, although you saw them, according to your own statement, at police headquarters, and saw them there the very Sunday morning that the crime was committed, not a word, not a word, although the notes themselves said that the crime was done by a Negro. It is not necessary to discuss that further. Frank says, with reference to this visit of Conley to the factory, after Conley had gone through over yonder and demonstrated in detail, as told you by Branch, and in the same length of time 
and almost to the minute that Conley himself says it took, too. Though Conley only knows the clock registered four minutes to one and don't know anything about the balance of the time. He says, with reference to the visit of Conley to the jail, when Conley wanted to confront him, I told them if they got the permission, I told them through my friend Mr. Klein, that if they got the permission of Mr. Rosser to come, I would speak to them, would speak to Conley and face him or anything they wanted, if they got the permission of Mr. Rosser. Mr. Rosser was on that day up at Tulua Falls trying a case. But Mr. Rosser got back, didn't he? Mr. Rosser didn't remain at Tulua Falls. I tell you, gentlemen of the jury, measuring my words as I utter them, and if you have sense enough to get out of a shower of rain, you know it's true, that never in the history of the Anglo-Saxon race, never in the history of the African race in America, never in the history of any other race, did an ignorant, filthy Negro accuse a white man of a crime, and that man decline to face him. And there never lived within the state of Georgia a lawyer with one half the ability of Mr. Luther Rosser, who possessed a consciousness of his client's innocence, that wouldn't have said, Let this ignorant Negro confront my innocent client. If there be a Negro who accuses me of a crime of which I am innocent, I tell you, and you know it's true, I'm going to confront him. Even before my attorney, no matter who he is, returns from Tulua Falls, and if not then... I tell you, just as soon as that attorney does return, I'm going to see that that Negro is brought into my presence and permitted to set forth his accusations. You make much here of the fact that you didn't know what this man Conley was going to say when he got on the stand. You could have known it, but you dared not do it. Mr. Rosser May it please the court, that is an untrue statement. At that time, when he proposed to go through that dirty farce, with a dirty negro, with a crowd of policemen, confronting this man, he made his first statement. His last statement, he said, and these addendas nobody ever dreamed of them, and Frank had no chance to meet them. That's the truth. You ought to tell the truth if a man is involved for his life. That's the truth. Mr. Dorsey it does not make any difference about your addendas, and I'm going to put it right up to this jury. Mr. Rosser. May it please the court, have I got the right to interrupt him when he misstates the facts? The court. Whenever he goes outside of the record. Mr. Rosser. Has he got the right to comment that I haven't exercised my reasonable rights? The court. No, sir, not if he has done that. Mr. Rosser. Nobody has got a right to comment on the fact that I have made a reasonable objection. Mr. Dorsey. But I'm inside of the record, and you know it, and the jury knows it. I said, may it please your honor that this man Frank declined to be confronted by this man Conley. Mr. Rosser. That isn't what I objected to. 
He said that at that meeting that was proposed by Conley, as he says, but really proposed by the detectives, when I was out of the city, that if that had been met, I would have known Conley's statement. And that's not true. I would not have been any wiser about his statement than I was here the other day. The Court You can comment upon the fact that he refused to meet Frank or Frank refused to meet him, and at the time he did it, he was out of the city. Mr. Arnold We did object to that evidence, Your Honor, but Your Honor let that in. The Court I know. Go on. Mr. Dorsey They see the force of it. Mr. Rosser Is that a fair comment, Your Honor, if I make a reasonable objection to say that we see the force of it? The Court I don't think that, in reply to your objection, is a fair statement. Mr. Dorsey Now, may it please your honor, if they don't see the force of it, you do... Mr. Rosser I want to know, is your honor's ruling to be absolutely disregarded like that? The Court Mr. Dorsey, stay inside of the record and quit commenting on what they say and do. Mr. Dorsey I am inside of the record, and your honor knows that's an entirely proper comment. Mr. Rosser Your honor rules. He says one thing and then says your honor knows better. Mr. Dorsey your Honor knows I have got a right to comment on the conduct of this defendant. The Court Of course, you have. But when they get up, I don't think you have any right to comment on their objections as they are making them to the Court. Mr. Dorsey I don't. The Court No, I don't think so. Mr. Dorsey isn't everything that occurs in the presence of the court the subject matter for comment? The court. No, I don't think you can comment on these things. You can comment on any conduct within the province of this trial, but if he makes an objection that's sustained, why, then, you can't comment on that. Mr. Dorsey. Does your honor say I'm outside of the record? The court. No, I don't, but I say this. You can comment on the fact that Frank refused to meet this man. If that's in the record, you have a right to do that. Mr. Dorsey. This man Frank, a graduate of Cornell, the superintendent of the pencil factory, so anxious to ferret out this murder that he had phoned Schiff three times on Monday, April 28th, to employ the Pinkerton Detective Agency, this white man, refused to meet this ignorant Negro, Jim Conley. He refused upon the flimsy pretext that his counsel was out of town, but when his counsel returned, when he had the opportunity to know at least something of the accusations that Conley brought against this man, he dared not let him meet him. It is unnecessary to take up time discussing that. You tell me that the weakest among you if you were innocent and a man of black skin charges you with an infamous murder, that any lawyer, 
Rosser or anybody else, could keep you from confronting him and nailing the lie? No lawyer on earth, no lawyer that ever lived in any age or any clime, could prevent me, if I were innocent, from confronting a man who accused me wrongfully, be he white or black. And you, Leo Frank, went in and interviewed Newtley down yonder at 12 o'clock, Tuesday night, April 29th. And what did you do? Did you act like a man who wanted to get at the truth? Who didn't know it and wanted to get at the truth? Ah, uh, no. Instead of going into that room and taking up with this Negro, Newt Lee, the man towards whom you had directed suspicion infamously to save your own neck, a man that you would have seen hung on the gallows in order to save your reputation with the people on Washington Street and the members of the Benet Brith. Did you make an earnest, honest, conscientious effort, as an innocent employer would with his employee, to get at the truth? No. According to Lee, you hung your head and quizzed him not, but predicted that both Lee and you would go to hell if Lee continued to tell the story which he tells even until this good day. And then in your statement here, try to make it appear that your detective Scott and old John Black concocted a scheme against you and lied as to what occurred on that Tuesday night. The reason why Frank didn't put it up to Newt Lee and try to get Newt Lee to tell him how that murder occurred and what he knew about it was because Frank knew that Lee was innocent, that he was the murderer, and that he was adding to the dastardly crime of assault upon the virtue of this girl, was adding to the crime of murder of this girl, another infamous effort to send this Negro to the gallows in order to save his reputation and neck. Listen to this. He's smart, and just listen how, in his statement, he qualifies and fixes it up so that, when we come back with rebuttal, the technical law will protect him. They, meaning the detectives, stress the possibility of couples having been let into the factory at night. By night watchmen? No. By night watchman Newt Lee. Lee had been there but two or three weeks. Three weeks. Frank could have told you that the detectives stressed the fact that couples went in their holidays, Saturdays and at nights, at all times and at any time when other night watchmen were there. But Newt Lee, having been there but three weeks. He effectively shuts off the state from impeaching his statement or contradicting it. And therefore, he tells you that the detectives stressed the fact that couples had been in here while the night watchman, Newt Lee, was watching. And Newt had been there but three weeks. That wasn't the period, that wasn't the time. During that three weeks that old Newt was night watching, there was but one person for whom your passion burned. And that was Mary Fagan. And she wouldn't meet you. And she didn't meet you any time during that period that Newt Lee was night watching. But in the summer previous, when Dalton was seen to go there, if it be not true that couples were admitted, why didn't you make the bold, emphatic, challenging statement that at no time were couples ever admitted? 
And then you tell me that that's a good statement and a fair statement and a frank statement? Now, another thing. Listen to this. I read from the defendant's statement. Now, with reference to these spots that are claimed to be blood and that Mr. Barrett found, I don't claim they are not blood. They may have been. They were right close to the ladies' dressing room, and we have accidents there. And by the way, in reference to those accidents, the accidents of which we have records are not the only accidents that have happened there. Now, we use paint and varnish around there, a great deal of it, and while I don't say that this is not blood, it may be, but it could also have been paint. I have seen the girls drop bottles of paint and varnish and have them break there on the floor. I have seen that happen right close to that spot. If that had been fresh red paint, or if it had been fresh red blood, and that haskeline compound, that soap in it, which is a great solvent, had been put on there in the liquid state, it wouldn't have shown up white, as it showed up then, but it would have showed up either pink or red. Now, first, contrast that statement for a moment with this statement with reference to the condition of the floor where Barrett worked. There he says there wasn't a spot, much less a blood spot. Looked at the machinery and the lathe, looked at the table on which the lathe stands, and the lathe bed, and the floor underneath the lathe, and there wasn't a spot, much less a blood spot underneath. All right. You say that that wasn't blood. You say that that haskeline wouldn't turn that color. In the name of goodness, in the name of truth, I ask you, if that haskeline mixed with that blood on the second floor wouldn't have produced the identical result that these witnesses have sworn, if it be true, as Mr. Rosser stated, that you don't attach any importance to the cabbage findings and experiments made in this case. Why didn't you devote a little of your time to bringing before this jury a reputable chemist and a man who could sustain you in that statement? You had that evidence in your possession, or if you were able to bring in these medical experts here to tear down the powerful evidence of Dr. Roy Harris, as eminent an authority as lives in the state of Georgia, in the name of truth and fair play, before you men who ought to have every fact that will enable you to get at the truth, why didn't you bring one chemist to sustain you? There's but one answer, and you know what it is. Those spots were blood. They were blood over which had been placed that substance, haskeline, and the color that blood and haskeline would make upon that floor was the identical color found there by the numerous witnesses who saw it. Important? There is no more important fact for you to have shown than that this haskeline, when wiped over blood, would have made a color the like unto which Frank in his statement would have you believe would have been made. Are you going to accept the statement of this man? with all these circumstances unsupported by chemists or anybody on earth, because they couldn't get them to come in and testify themselves on that point, as against the evidence of all these witnesses who have told you that that was blood, and against the evidence of Dr. Claude Smith, the city bacteriologist of the city of Atlanta, who tells you that through a chemical analysis, he developed the fact that that was blood? You've been listening to our continuing audiobook series featuring the best writing from the American Mercury on the Leo Frank case. 
Be with us next time when we will continue with the next installment of the American Mercury on Leo Frank.